Hello, folks. We are live on Facebook, and we will also put this on YouTube. We're with Dr. Peter Grinspoon, who I have interviewed before, and he's an excellent spokesperson for medical uh, cannabis and also a, a spokesperson for medicine in general. I'm pleased to have him back. Dr. Peter Grinspoon, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me back. Uh, this time around, uh, since you practice in Chelsea a great deal, I wanted to kind of do this in two parts. Talk about how COVID has particularly affected not only the, the, the medicine of Chelsea, but the fabric of the neighborhood, and also talk about cannabis. So first, if we could talk about what you've seen, what you do see, what you witness in Chelsea that other folks you know, might not be privy to because they're not there. How is it different in communities like Chelsea? Well, you know, I've been a primary care doctor in Chelsea for um, 12 years, 12 and a half actually. And, you know, Chelsea just got so hammered. We had the highest rate in the state, if not the country, for a couple weeks. Um, the reason we had such a high rate of coronavirus is because, you know, basically because people are poor. Uh, some of them are undocumented and were afraid to go to the hospital. A lot of people were living cramped together and were afraid to social distance. Um, you know, some people didn't have health insurance. And a lot of people, you know, people in the suburbs that have, you know, white collar jobs can be like, okay, I'll take a couple weeks off in quarantine. But if you're in a position where you don't work for the day, you don't eat and your family doesn't eat, you're not going to stay home from work. So a lot of our patients couldn't stay home. So, you know, uh, coronavirus spread like wildfire in Chelsea. And um, I do want to say that I thought Mass General in my clinic um, did a phenomenal job given that, you know, we just got flattened with coronavirus. Um, we rented a hotel, um, the Quality Inn, so that um, people could social distance in the hotel. Families could do that or people, which is pretty innovative and cool. And, you know, and they did that in other parts of the country. And you heard these horror stories of, um, you know, people dying. No, nobody died. There were no bad incidents at all. In our hotel, we had doctors on call at night, nurses uh, during the day uh, taking care of people. It was just a phenomenal success. And we passed out um, masks and um, hand sanitizer, these uh, quarantine bags to everybody, uh, every single household, I believe in Chelsea. And there were huge drives for food and actually diapers were really in short supply. Um, so on the one hand, I thought we did a really good job. But on the other hand, it was just really sad to see, um, you know, the fault lines in society. You know, we all know sort of hypothetically that our society is like really, um, you know, has in you know, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And we just have a lot of social problems as our social net gets more frayed each year. But when you have a like a stress test, like a pandemic, you can really see uh, the effects of this. And it was really sobering to see. And I have to say, we're all sort of walking in eggshells. Now uh, the cases have come down, but they're gonna go, we think they're probably gonna go back up around flu season, if not sooner. And we're all sort of you know, anxious about what's gonna happen again in the fall. We'll be more, you'll be more prepared this time because you have more information and you know how this thing tends to, to work, right? Well, that, that should hopefully help. Well, we'll be more prepared on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you can't make people act a certain way uh, to a certain extent. You know, uh, most people wore masks, but not everybody. And, you know, most people were social distance, but not everybody. And we're better at treating it in the hospital, but there's still no real treatment for it. And there's no vaccine yet. So on the one hand, yes, 
we're better at it. But, you know, with kids possibly going back to school, with all the college kids coming in from all over the country, you know, from Arizona, Florida, and California, where the rates are much higher, Massachusetts has actually done an excellent job. But other parts of the country are having a lot of difficulty. Um, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, I personally uh, think that 19-year-olds, for example, nothing is 19-year-olds. I have a bunch of them at home. But, you know, if you combine, like, 19-year-old alcohol and hormones, I don't think that makes for a great, um, you know, case study in social distancing. So I'm a little bit concerned about what's going to happen on the college campuses, you know. So, and, you know, the same in high school. So, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. You're right. It's it's going to be, in some ways, better knowing what we're about to experience. But I don't think it's going to be easy by any means. I think it might be, like, really bad. If you were the king of... The king of the country, how would you deal with school? Would you keep it strictly distance learning? Would you let a few kids come back? How would, how would you deal with it? Well, thanks for asking me the one question that no one has the answer to. But, um, you know, on the one hand, it's just not right for kids to be home, especially if, what if you're like an only child? I mean, like learning academics to me is like 10% of what school offers. Like 90% is learning how to deal with other people. And like, you're just taking that away from people by not having to go back. But on the other hand, and, and also like, how are the adults supposed to do their jobs? Like, for example, you know, all the doctors I work with that have little kids at home are like, you know, banging their heads against the wall, trying to figure out what they're going to do in the fall if their kids don't go to school. But on the other hand, it seems like a recipe for disaster to have the kids go back to school because the more we're learning about it, these kids even if they don't get really sick, they carry and spread the virus. And their teachers are going to get sick. I don't blame the teachers for being terrified. So uh, there just isn't a good answer to that. And given that none of the best educational consultants um, or administrators have any idea what to do, I'm, I don't feel like I'm in a great position to answer that either. Sorry, not to, not to duck out of the question, but okay. I just don't know the answer. One thing that, uh, oh, I should say another way that this disease is showing um, it's bad to be poor is that people who can afford it are putting together these learning pods where people who uh, can't, won't, and so either their kid's going to get left behind educationally or the poor people are, are once again going to be more exposed to the disease because they have to go to school. All right. Um, young people at first weren't getting sick. It was thought that they didn't get it and they didn't get it badly when they did get it. Is that changing? Is that, was that wrong? Is that changing? Well, I don't think it's changing. Um, it might have been wrong. Um, I still think the rates are much lower for young people, but young people can get really sick. So if you're a young person, A, you can get really sick. It's just much less likely. The problem is young people generally don't tend to get really sick unless they have a heart problem or a lung problem. The problem is you might not know if you have a heart problem or a lung problem until you get something like COVID. So, you know, these young people that act like they're invulnerable, uh, they probably are, but what if they're the 1% that has some kind of underlying immune or heart or lung problem? Um, and then they, they wouldn't know about it until they get something like coronavirus. So that's the problem. You don't really know. And also, there seems to be something about the virus that we really don't understand. Uh, that, you know, two people that seem equally healthy, 
one person will get the virus and it'll, they won't even get the sniffles. And another person will end up in the intensive care unit. And they just don't seem to understand why there's so much variability in how sick different people get. Obviously, if someone has heart disease, lung disease, chain smokes and weighs 500 pounds, they're going to get sicker than a health nut who is the right, the perfect body weight and doesn't have any medical problems. So, you know, certainly uh, the medical conditions play a role. But still, if you have two people that are equally sick, equally healthy, it still seems like this virus wreaks havoc on one person and sort of ignores another person. So it's just so hard to tell what's going to happen. So, um, you know, I think everybody just has to assume, A, that they might get really sick, and B, that they could spread it to other people. Even if you're a 19-year-old who thinks they're invulnerable, they, you just have to act like the whole world's radioactive and do a really good job of social distancing. Yes. Um, that's, when I see those kids at pool parties and stuff, there's this, this so much disturbing about that. It, to me, it's selfish. Yeah, it, even if you don't get it, you certainly can spread it, and you just don't seem to care. It's like, well, it doesn't affect me. I'll probably be okay. So the heck with it. That That's bothersome. But what about when you see those adults in, like, Mississippi that are at those pool parties? Right. That's even more aggravating to me because they're adults. A 17-year-old doesn't have a fully developed brain. You know, supposedly uh, an adult does. I, I, it's so aggravating to see these adults acting like children. Okay. Now let's appreciate this portion of our, our talk. Now let's talk about cannabis and how you integrate cannabis into healthcare. Firstly, it's probably important at this point to, to note that you come from a, a cannabis slash medical family and your dad, your late dad was a, you know, a pioneer in this and he recently passed. Can you talk about what he, what he did and, and what a loss it was to that community? Well, that would take about a month but in essence, um, he was um, one of the intellectual leaders, if not the intellectual leader of the legalization movement. He wrote a very pioneering book in 1971 called Marijuana Reconsidered that was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review that made like such a compelling case for legalization of cannabis and sort of overturned um, the last 50 or so years uh, or the previous 50 or so years of government propaganda against cannabis that he really um, provided a ton of legitimacy for the legalization movement. He wrote another book in 1993 called Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine, where he um, made such a strong case for, for medical cannabis that he uh, gave a lot of encouragement and intellectual support for the state-by-state -state legalization movements, resulting in legalization of cannabis in California as the first state in 1996. And he has just been involved in the legalization movement literally for the last five decades of his life um, until, as you mentioned, he passed away about a month ago. Um, he uh, was a very uh, brilliant man and he did a lot of drug research and other drugs. You know, for example, he wrote a book in 1979 called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, calling for psychedelics to come out of the street and into the laboratory to treat psychiatric conditions like depression. Now, that's pretty cool that he was calling for that, you know, like 40 years ago, and now everybody else is calling for it. I think he was a real visionary on drug policy. He was, he was also calling for us to cut down or eliminate criminal time for, for cocaine charges. And if people had listened to him instead of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, we wouldn't have, you know, millions of people rotting away in prison for no reason. So 
he was very visionary on, on drug policy across the board, but he was most famous um, for the cannabis stuff. And I can honestly say that um, cannabis would not be illegal anywhere if not for him. For the record, is, your dad's name was Lester, correct? Lester Grinstein. Yeah, Lester. Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine, and what was the, another one of the books? Marijuana Reconsidered was the big book in 1971. And when he wrote it, one of the reasons it was courageous is that, you know, now there's a 67% um, in favor of legalization of recreational cannabis. And there's, um, you know, like 93% are in favor of medical cannabis. But when he wrote Marijuana Reconsidered, there was like 15% support for legalization of cannabis. And he wrote this book that was like, hey, we should legalize cannabis. The government's lying about it. It's relatively non-toxic and has all these great uh, medical uses um, and has this fascinating social history going back 5,000 years. So that was a pretty brave uh, position to take in 1971 because of the work that he and thousands of other activists have done over the last 50 years. It's not that brave a position now, but it's important to remember that back then it was a pretty courageous position. We're with, we're with Dr. Peter Grinspoon, a uh, Mass General doctor who had part of his practices in Chelsea, just to bring you up to speed. And we're talking about how Dr. Grinspoon integrates cannabis into medicine. Well, how did your dad and how do you integrate cannabis into medicine? Well, you know, I'm a primary care doctor and I've been a primary care doctor for 25 years. I've always um, recommended medical cannabis. Uh, the only difference is over the last um, eight years or so, it's been legal. You know, I've never explicitly told people to break the law, but I have mentioned, you know, hey, cannabis, you know, back when I was just starting, I'd be like, you know, some people use cannabis for migraines and find it helpful, made oblique references. And it's certainly been a lot easier now to be more explicit about it now that it's uh, legalized for medical use in, in 2014. Um, I'm sorry, in 20, yeah, 2014, I believe was the, the medical use. I should know because I worked in the campaign, but, um, and I tend to use it um, if I can, you know, some people are just against it because of the stigma, less and less. Um, but I tend to use it um, as much as I use other sleeping medications. So I think it's fundamentally safer than medications like Ambien. You know, when you talk about the risks of marijuana, you have to talk about it as opposed to the risks of anything else you'd be using. No drug is harm free. There is no free lunch. So of course, cannabis has some risks. You, a lot of people smoke it. It's safer to vape the flower. Uh, you know, it's an intoxicant. You shouldn't drive on it. You know, teenagers can get into it. Pets can get into it. There, there's no free lunch with a medication, but is cannabis safer than Ambien or whatever else you would use for sleep? Um, is it safer than whatever else you'd use for chronic pain? So, you know, tons of Americans, you know, tens of millions have chronic pain. You know, they're getting older, a little bit more portly as time goes on. Their knees are aching, their backs are aching. You know, Tylenol doesn't really do anything. Um, nobody wants to be in opiates for a hundred different reasons. And the non-steroidals like ibuprofen, naproxen, Aleve, diclofenac, um, those eat away at your kidney. They give you ulcers and they can give you a heart attack. So I would argue that cannabis is much safer than those. And if I have patients who have chronic pain, uh, you know, I say to them, you can get away with being on ibuprofen or Motrin, you know, for five, 10 years, but you can't be on it for 20, 30, 40 years. You've got to find a different solution for your chronic pain. And I always offer cannabis as an option. So I use it a lot for chronic pain and for insomnia and for a variety of other issues. And these days, there's so many, so many more oppor 
options with the dispensaries open that it's not a question of getting stoned out of your mind. You could just take a puff um, of cannabis that has a lot of CBD in it or, you know, a tincture, a few drops under your tongue, and you don't necessarily even get very high at all. And, and you don't need very high doses to control a lot of these conditions. So, um, you know, once people discover that, they're usually really happy with it. Do they slash you know how, what, what the chemical action is that, that allows cannabis to reduce pain? How does it block pain? Do they know? Uh, well, they're learning. You know, remember the research on, on this whole, not only on the drug, uh, on the plant, but also on the whole system was, was pretty much blocked for decades because of the government's war on drugs and the war on cannabis. So we're really late in learning about the neurotransmitter system called the endocannabinoid system because cannabis is a cannabinoid, it's a type of molecule. And there's a natural transmitter system in our body that by which it works. So we're really late and we've just started to learn a lot about this system over the last 20 or 30 years. But there are receptors in the brain and receptors in the nervous system by which the cannabis molecules attach themselves to that dampen the pain uh, transmission signals. And they also work well with our natural opiates or if you take opiates, you, have to, you can take a much lower dose because they work really well with the opiates. And they do two things. One, they dampen the pain signals so you feel less pain and two, they also make the pain a less uh, noxious phenomenon. So the pain doesn't bother you as much, partially because they just turn off the part of your brain that makes pain an unpleasant sensation. And, and partially because the rest of you just feels better. You know, you're not focused on your back hurting. You're focused on, you know, how beautiful the world is or how much, how interested you are in the TV show or whatever. They bring your, they focus your attention away from the pain. So they work uh, really well for pain and, you know, they don't work for everybody. Nothing works a hundred percent, but I think for chronic pain, they're often uh, worth a try and that people find themselves uh, really happy um, with cannabis. Uh, they, they don't have the dependency and the rebound hangover of opiates and they don't have the, the gastritis and the slowly worsening kidney function of the non-steroidals. Dr. Grinspoon, does CBD, well, to what degree does CBD work? And to what degree is it hype? Yes, uh, is the answer. Okay. Um, CBD, um, we're learning uh, how much CBD works. CBD is one of the 600 molecules in cannabis. It's one of the cannabinoids out of like 140. And the beauty of CBD is that it's non-intoxicating. You couldn't get high on CBD if you tried. And it's non-addictive. Uh, you couldn't have fun with CBD if, if you tried. So there's no reason for the government to be against it. Um, but it is not nearly as strong as uh, cannabis with all of its components. And it's not, it doesn't cause that euphoria, that, that mild euphoria that cannabis causes. Um, people tend to use it for anxiety, insomnia, and chronic pain. It is not as strong as cannabis. Um, a lot of people swear by it. Uh, there are some good studies that show that it does work for chronic pain, anxiety, and insomnia. A lot of these uh, studies are in animals. Um, it's been hard to study just because it's been under the cannabis umbrella. And our government, again, has made all cannabis uh, research almost impossible unless you're looking to prove that it's you know the evil weed that is bad for you. So it's been hard to do studies on CBD. Now it's a lot easier. So we're gonna learn more about your question of how much does CBD work over the next couple of years. The one thing I could say about CBD is um, 
the enthusiasm for CBD is certainly outpaced the actual hardcore scientific data. So um, I think it does work um, to a certain extent for some people. And if it works for them, that's great. But I certainly think the claims can be uh, very inflated and that um, you do have to shop for it very carefully. You have to make sure that the place you're getting it from is a reputable place because a lot of people uh, sell CBD and because it's regulated as a supplement, no one's really checking. So you have to make sure that if you buy right. it, they have an independent lab and a COA or certificate of assurance. So be skeptical of, be yeah. skeptical of gas station CBD, just like gas station coffee and gas station donuts. Yeah. But at least gas station coffee will wake you up and, and gas station donuts will give you uh, diabetes. <laughs> um, I don't think that gas station CBD has any CBD in it. So, okay. you know, you want to, you want to go to a place that has independent laboratory testing and that has, certification of that on their website, for example, then you know you're actually getting CBD because a random person is, or a, a, a certified lab is randomly testing uh, the CBD and making sure that it actually has CBD in it. All right, folks, and make sure that you shop a little bit so you don't get ripped off. One final question, and that is, does a little a hint of THC in the CBD make the CBD work better? Well, I think it does. Um, I think that CBD with THC works better for chronic pain, works better for insomnia, and works better uh, usually for anxiety. Um, anxiety is a little bit complicated because some people can't use any THC because it causes them anxiety. But for most people, it helps them with anxiety at low doses. Now, at low doses with cannabis in general, with the THC, anxiety goes down, and at higher doses, it can go up. So uh, if you're treating anxiety with THC cannabis or THC and CBD, you just have to be very careful about the dose, which right. is why we always say start low and go slow. Like what you don't want to do is have a patient go to the dispensary and say, wow, that brownie looks delicious. I'm going to eat the whole thing. Oh, and yeah. Freak out. I haven't ever had that happen with a patient because I browbeat them about starting low and going slow. Yes. And, uh, and we, we've talked before. Suggestion to folks just starting out. If you use an edible and you don't notice anything, don't take more that day. Wait till tomorrow. Wait till tomorrow. If you're going to make a mistake with the dose, have the mistake be you didn't take enough, you're a little bit bored and disappointed, and start again the next day and take a little bit more. Don't have the mistake be you took too much, now you're anxious, you're stuck with it for eight hours and incapacitated, and you're miserable. It's just not worth it. Dr. Peter Grinspoon, you are a great, great guest, and I'm so, I'm so pleased that I'm able to spend a little time with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's really fun um, getting to talk to you again. And please give my best to your wife, who was at our previous interview. Oh, yeah. Liz wanted me to say hi as well. <laughs> so. Excellent. Well, thanks, Doc. Thank you. All the, all the best to you. Bye-bye. Have a good day.